Hi, it's Manny Jules speaking to you from Cold Creek on the Kamloops Indian Reserve. I'm the Chief Commissioner of the First Nations Tax Commission. Hi, I'm Greg Richard. I'm one of Manny Jules' many economists with the Fiscal Realities Economists. Do you know what was really interesting to me when we were doing some of this research was like like just the land question. I I it was much deeper than I actually realized, and that's probably true of most people. Like I, I was quite taken by how consistent this this you know, some of the quotes and how consistent all these leaders were about you have to settle the land question, you have to settle the land question. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that or like... Uh, um, well, you know, when when I first started uh, on council, you know, a lot, of course I got some of the education from uh, my elders, but uh, my elder always was my dad. And uh, I remember, you know, talking to him about a lot of the issues. And we went on a number of drives when I was a young kid. And he told me about, you know, Skidam Flats, told me about Harper Ranch. And a lot of the listeners aren't going to know about this, but th those were lands that were taken away from us. And he would say, this is our land. And I'd say, well, it's that part of the reserve. And he'd say, no, it's not the reserve. It's ours. And so that's something that we still talk about today right across this, this country is because this was all ours and, and really when you think about it, it still is because ownership a lot of times is just a, a concept. And the way we think about uh, ownership isn't just about a piece of paper. It's about uh, this this feeling that we have in our in our minds and our bodies and in our soul you know and that's how I feel when I drive around uh, and visit uh, the, the many bands and tribes that I visited over the years I just feel a kinship uh, with them about where they're from their unique histories you know uh, the, like the Pueblos in in the southwest uh, and I'm also struck by the fact that most of the housing development in the United States are are mobile homes. But, you know, when you think about uh, uh, the consistency of both the federal and provincial governments and their unwillingness to, to really move, it's because they have all of the power. You know, when... when uh, uh, that's what happens when colonization takes place. And I, and I look at, you know, the UNDRIP uh, as a, a very important document, but that's all it is, is a document. What, what really is required to move us uh, towards a greater uh, role in, in uh, Canada and the United States and in the Americas uh, is, is legislation. Because legislation, even though you're dealing with an international, you know, proclamation through the uh, the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights, that's all it is, is a declaration. What has to happen is that there has to be a legislation approach. And it isn't going to be an omnibus, you know, you're not going to get one piece of legislation, it's going to have to be a myriad of 
different legislations. But what really struck me early on was how little I really knew about the history and how much of, of that I had to learn through many teachers. Uh, one of the first ones was uh, my cousin, uh, Chief Ron, Ron Ignis, who had done a, a master's thesis on the McKenna McBride Commission. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot uh, through that document. But I also learned a lot, uh, you know, through talking with my dad, but also the uh, James Tate, uh, the Shushwap. And I was really struck about, recently I just finished a book uh, on Franz Boaz. Franz Boaz uh, was European and he came over to... Uh, uh, the United States and uh, became one of the intelligentsia in uh, in New York. And at that time, there was a great debate about uh, indigenous people, and you know it just goes right back to like the, the the papal bull, whether or not we even had a soul or we had a a proper culture. And he was one of the ones who started to think differently about indigenous people, and what he undertook. Uh, uh, was creating many disciples who, you know, he's known as the, the father of uh, anthropology, you know, the study of of uh, ancient peoples around the world. And, and really it, it determined uh, our worth that uh, ultimately it led to in the Delgamuk decision that our oral tradition is just as valuable as a written, written uh, 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 piece of paper. You know, oral tradition, you can, and, and I've always felt this, that you can meld uh, the science and the, the oral tradition together and build uh, our history. And, and we're going to be able to accomplish that through science again, and that's through uh, DNA. And DNA, you know, interestingly enough, has its roots in uh, uh, the the, sm the uh, Spanish flu influenza of 1918. And so all of that science started its development there. But when you look at uh, the lack of political will from the governments to give up their colonial authority uh, is rooted in the colonial past. And so ultimately the governments have to shed that colonial past, which in my view, so much of it is rooted in racism uh, because it, it, it's not only, you know, thinking that uh, one race was superior to another, uh, but the fact that they could just come and plant a flag and everything changed uh, is still prevalent today. And so when I think about that, in juxtaposition with uh, the riots that are going on and the struggle of, of uh, you know, the, the, the black and white in the United States, uh, us as indigenous people, as the red people, uh, should not be forgotten in that debate. Yeah, I forgot the original question there, Greg. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, there's just a whole, actually there's a whole bunch of things I'd like to ask you about. I don't know if we have time, but. Well, it'd be kind of interesting to, to just delve into a whole bunch of the different points that you made, but, but in more detail and length, et cetera. 
I mean, I could just say, just to reinforce what you were saying, I think you're correct, though. This, I think the smallpox epidemic was just an absolutely huge factor in, in what happened in BC because we did some quick calculations and we think that the ratio, the population ratio, shifted from about 10 to 1 indigenous to settler to 2 to 1 in the course of between between 1862 and uh, BC entering Confederation. I mean, think about that, 10 to 1 to 2 to 1. So that, that was like a, just a massive shift. And uh, yeah, I think that was just a huge thing. And the other thing, if I could just make a quick point, is when we did this research, you know what jumps out at me loud and clear is that BC was definitely going its own way when it comes to, to uh, how it was treating indigenous people, it was it was different from the, the British policy, different from the Canadian policy, like this idea of, like they were basically saying terra nullis after, uh, after the smallpox epidemic. You know, they were just up to them. They're just going to reallocate land and everything. And we, we collected a lot of data on what happened with a lot of the, the cutoffs, et cetera. And it was always the same story, really just put them on the worst possible land and make the claim that that they can't make the land productive anyway. And the the allotments per person were so much lower than in Canada. I mean, I know this is BC, not not the prairie, so the agricultural land is more productive, but it was just like considerably lower. I think at one point it said it was down to like one acre per family. It was 80 on the prairies. They had a big debate with Canada. Canada wanted to raise it and Trutch was holding the line. And the story that comes through loud and clear is that gradually BC wore Canada down, like federal provincial relations trumped federal First Nation relations. Um, there it is, 1873. Federal government wanted 80 acres per Indian household. Trutch held firm at 20, and eventually the the uh, federal government caved. It's really, I mean, it's just a fascinating story. I just think it would be fun to, well. To just get into this a little bit more, well, most people well, understand the, the, Well, so much of the history is so, you know, it's, it's for me, history, uh, even though it's it's one individual's take, usually in the in a book or something like this, you can also uh, uh, pick up on, a little bit on their own individual philosophy. But one of the most interesting ones I, I just finished reading, uh, is a book on the caste wars in the Yucatan. And it's the only successful uh, Indian rebellion in the Americas. Uh, <clears throat> what happened, it is about a 50-year time span uh, when Mexico was just moving into, I, I think at around 1811 or 1812, they declared themselves a, a state government. Might have been later, I can't read recollect completely but anyway the 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 mayan in the yucatan uh, discovered a small 10 to 10 centimeters cross in this uh, cenote which is a well water well they don't have running rivers in in the yucatan they have uh, cenotes which is a, a big uh, because it's you know the whole peninsula is virtually limestone so they have these uh, big wells of water uh, that collapse in and of itself and then, then fresh water's there. But So they found this little cross and it started to speak to them. 
And the cross, of course, in Catholicism and Christianity is the arms outstretched of uh, Jesus. And uh, Jesus died for all of our sins. So the Mayans took that symbolism and it became the first tree uh, with the outstretched arms. And it, it started to tell them that they had to organize themselves and rebel. And uh, ultimately that, that cenote was completely destroyed, but they'd already left. And they, they just had another cross. But uh, at one point uh, in the, during the caste wars, uh, the British uh, government, and I believe other governments, but the, the British government recognized them as a state on their own. It's the first indigenous state to be recognized uh, by Great Britain in the Americas. And I think that's that's an incredible story. Uh, and there are so many in the Americas. So history is, is to me, is always more fascinating than fiction. Because you can't, you can't make up, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just so fascinating. So anyway, thank you, Greg. I've been really blessed over my life to have witnessed many things. I witnessed the constitutional debates. I listened with great reverence to a lot of the leaders like Jimmy Sinclair, Joe Gosnell, Bill Wilson, Joe Mathias, Joe Muskokaman, all of the leaders that I paid attention to as a young man, talking about our future, knowing, well, and even Bob Manuel, I think, We've got to give him a lot of credit and his dad, George. Some of the earliest meetings I went to was listening to George Manuel at Paul Creek Hall. And that was just leading up to the uh, white paper policy. It must have been in 1968. I would have been about 17 years old, 16 years old then listening to George talk about the white paper policy and the fact that that wasn't our way, that we didn't want forced integration to be legislated out of, you know, the way, the way things were. But ultimately that led to the constitutional recognition of Section 35. And so when I think about Section 35, is it a full box or an empty box? You know, that kind of an esoteric argument that goes on even to this day. I believe that Section 35 had to be in place because the drafters knew that law would change over time, that nothing was going to be static and that the Canadian Constitution had to be able to meld or move or bend to various court cases involving us would take place. But even with 
the advent of the Delgamuksic court case in 1997, the recent Chalcotin court case just a couple of years ago, all of those court cases still talk about not only do we have an interest in the land, but it also defines uh, the interest in the land as a usufructory interest which means that we have a use and benefit of the land, but we don't really own it, even though there's a declared title. And that's why we need a proper land title system, as our ancestors called on the governments to acknowledge, so that we can have an orderly expansion of our land base, so that we can have development in our lands that is equal and competitive to anyone else. The last speech I gave before the shutdown was to the Southern Chiefs of Manitoba and Brokenhead. I remember the, the flight going out to Winnipeg. I think it was this Sunday. And uh, we were all waiting here at the Kamloops airport to to go out and there were two people that were sick on the on the on the flight coming into Kamloops uh, we wondered about that because an ambulance showed up the plane was closed people weren't allowed to disembark this ambulance shows up and then people get out with hazmat hazmat suits on going into the plane and they made a determination that the individuals weren't sick from COVID-19 but were sick uh, just because they were I don't know Montezuma's revenge I guess I I don't really know the cause but I relayed that story to the chiefs in uh, the southern chiefs in Manitoba and I said that's our future for the next little while that there was going to be a lockdown and that we would be asking for somebody else to help us. So the Trudeau government made a commitment to have a new fiscal relationship with First Nations. I believe the AFN spent the first term of the Trudeau government negotiating 10-year programs. That isn't a fiscal relationship. That isn't something that will solidify our cultures, our economic well-being. Because programs are at the will of another level of government. We call that secondhand tax. What we need is explicit jurisdictions. And that was the message I gave to the Southern Chiefs. We need clear tax jurisdiction over lands and resources that aren't just on the reserves but within our traditional and treaty territories. And that requires maintaining the integrity of the Canadian tax system. 
It requires the political will of the provincial governments to vacate Taxerum to First Nations. It requires the federal government to have the political will to do likewise. We're not asking for something that's extraordinary. There are constitutional rights at play, legal rights at play. And so when we speak this way, it's with the firm knowledge that these thoughts come from our ancestors, that they haven't changed. Some of those stories have been forgotten, though, like the fact that people talk about tax immunity. T-A-K-S-I-S. For us, taxes here in British Columbia is an important vehicle. And I think it translates also nationally. Because if we don't have tax jurisdiction and land, we're not going to be a government. No government operates on programs. That's a paper government. You can't provide direct services with programs because you're going to be asking somebody else to deliver it. That's what we've got now. We have to walk that narrow corridor, making sure that we're looking, have the ability to be able to look after ourselves and doing it within the Canadian framework, but also within the framework of our own teachings. And that means that we ultimately have to be able to contribute to our own betterment. Because we have to demonstrate to others that we're prepared to look after ourselves first and foremost. That we're not hoarding as individuals and not Sharing as our ancestors talked about. I always hear stories about that. Oh, we shared and everything. Well, if you have that kind of conversation today, people are saying, oh, that's, that's mine, that's not yours, that's, that's my individual right. Well, when it comes to health, it's a collective right to be able to protect ourselves. Because if we just deal with it as individuals, every one of us could be infected with COVID-19. But if we have the collective will to fight it, then we're going to be able to be in a position to deal with those kinds of issues. The complexity of life in the future can't go unheeded. It's going to be complex. It's going to take a great deal of political will and consternation and lobbying, education, even debating amongst ourselves, debating with others, because there's a feeling out there that we have no rights, that we should be simply integrated into the Canadian society. I witnessed that debate in 
when the chiefs rebuffed that, rejected it outright, said that we want our own government. But this notion that we can be a government just by ourselves also leads to further dependence. You can see that with a number of the treaties that we're involved in. And, you know, I know the debate has to be, can you do better? The only way we're going to be able to do better is through the collective will of all of us. The long-term objective has to be thinking about ourselves and like an 11th province. Right after the failed Charlottetown Accord debate, I got to working with Tom Crushane. He's the constitutional expert on fiscal relations here in Canada. Recently published a book on the new future involving First Nations. The premise after Charlottetown was looking at First Nations as an 11th province. We looked at their per capita expenditures and it was roughly the same at that time, about $10,000 per capita. What was completely lacking was the lack of infrastructure in our communities. You know, ultimately, do we want a standing army? I would say no. Do we want to, to have our own currency? I'd say no again. So there are agreements, I believe, where we can fit into the Federation. But our entree into the Federation can't do away with the individual's shushwapness, if you will. The Mi'kmaq, the Mohawk, the Cree, the Blackfoot, all of the other nations right across the Anishinaabe, right across this land. But individually, we can't stand up completely. How we're going to have to band together, I believe, is through looking at ourselves as an 11th province so that we can deal with transfers from our land and resources. Making sure that we have an equalization formula so that we can look after those communities that can't look after themselves right now, but ultimately will be in a position. We have to balance all of the interests on a national basis between the north, the south, the remote, the urban. You know, my community generates more money for the federal and provincial governments than we get back in programs. I think about the income tax that they collect off of the Kamloops Reserve, the PST, the GST, millions and millions of dollars. Same with West Bank and Squamish and many other communities right across the country. As a matter of fact, most of the communities that are involved in the FMA generate more revenue for the federal and provincial governments than we get back in terms of programs. So we do have economies. We do have 
and ability to be able to move forward. So, as I think about the number of other podcasts I want to do and messages is not just to talk about this, but to talk with others. Tamari from New Zealand, some of the others that I've been working with, so that you can get an idea of the discussions of the facts that we have to face in the future, but also to bring a measure of hope that we're not just sitting, that we're thinking hard about you, thinking that there is a way to make things better for us. Thank all of you for listening and I hope you haven't been too bored. <laughs>